Morning, everybody. Hang on, that's not the same stand I had yesterday. Where's the one I had yesterday? That one, maybe. I might nick that one, Tara. Sorry. Not that I'm weird about my stands or anything. Thank you. Okay, Esther part three. Um, I, have, I often find when I get to this point in a weekend away, as has already been said, you're kind of pretty tired, and maybe you've got one head already in tomorrow morning, work, whatever that might look like for you. Um, but it's good to finish this wonderful book. Uh, you'll be pleased to know, perhaps, that we'll be a bit shorter this morning than we were last night. Um, won't go on quite so long, uh, but lots of wonderful things to discover this morning from God's living words in Esther part three. Uh, in a moment, we'll do a, we'll do a quick recap. Just before, before that, and before I pray, just remember the two big overarching things we've seen. Okay, both um, yesterday, yesterday morning, yesterday evening. Number one, the providence of God in steering history to fulfill his promises to his people. Um, though God isn't named once in this book, through all of the it-just-so-happened moments, God is at work, and he's directing all things by his fatherly hand. That's the first big thing we've seen, the providence of God. Secondly, we see that he's chiefly at work to bring about a great reversal. That's what Esther's all about, this great reversal. We saw last night, that it's the beating heart of the Esther story, and how that shadows the greatest reversal, which the whole Bible points to, seen at the cross. So we're caught up in this story, is it? Signposts us to the story. Now, we're going to be briefer this morning, as I said. We're going to land later on by sharing the Lord's Supper together. Um, more on that in a bit. Let's pray now. We need the Spirit's help as we come to God's living word. Let's pray. Loving Father, we ask, please now, that as we come off the, toward the end of a wonderful weekend together, that you would give us minds that are ready to focus, ears that are ready to hear, hearts that are ready to receive from the fruit of your living words. And we pray as we prayed on every occasion that we might see Jesus and that we might go away rejoicing in him. And so we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, um, recap. Previously in Esther. Uh, really important that we get a sweep of the narrative as we head into this final session. I know we've kind of felt like we've done it all really quickly over this weekend, but important we just revisit the story as it sets up this morning. Just keep your eye out for those two things, the providence of God and the great reversal. Here's what happened last night. First off, we met Haman in chapter 3. He was elevated by Xerxes to second in command. He was hacked off that Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him. He wildly overreacted. He persuaded Xerxes to sign this decree calling for the total annihilation of the Jews throughout the Persian Empire on the day decided by the poor, the roll of the dice, remember that? Um, now, Mordecai and all the Jews, they mourned, and Mordecai desperately tries to encourage Esther to use her position as queen to save her people. She's initially cagey about the idea. Xerxes is a really big fan of impaling people on spikes, but eventually she's persuaded. She calls the Jews to fast as she prepares, and she finally gets her audience with the king, and he doesn't kill her, and on the contrary, he accepts her invite to a banquet, along with Haman. But for some reason, Esther delays telling Xerxes what's going on. And in the meantime, Haman goes for a walk, and he sees Mordecai, and he's so mad, he constructs that 23-meter-high pole in his back garden to have Mordecai impaled on the next day. And all is looking bleak for God's people, if you remember, at the end of chapter 5. But the providence of God and the great reversal. 
I think it might be a blind. Fine. Doesn't matter. Ignore it. The providence of God and the great reversal. Now, it just so happens that Xerxes has a restless night, and then it just so happens that he gets his attendants to read to him, and it just so happens that it's the book listing the events of his reign, and it just so happens that the attendants turn to the page about Mordecai saving the king's life, and Xerxes sits up in bed and thinks, we've got to honor this man. And Haman comes in, and he's turned up to ask about impaling Mordecai, and as we'll recall from last night, chapter 6 ends with Haman leading Mordecai around the city on a royal horse. And now Haman is grieving, and Mordecai is honored. And again, we see this great reversal. But it goes on. Chapter 7, banquet number 2. This time Esther finds the courage to spill the beans. Let's rip against Haman. The king rages. Haman makes it worse by falling on the sofas Esther's lying on, and it's curtains for him. And he's bagged up, and then he's ironically hoisted up on the enormous pole that was in his garden for Mordecai. Great reversal. Although, as we landed last night, things are still not yet sorted for God's people because the edict still stands, the day of death still looms, but under Esther and Mordecai's counsel, the king issues a second edict. The Jews will be allowed to defend themselves and then realization dawns across the empire that maybe, maybe getting on the side of God's people isn't such a bad idea. And God's people all over the empire begin to celebrate like there's no tomorrow, knowing that rescue awaits the providence of God, and a great reversal. And I, I hope that you're, you're picking this up, that this is such a good story. Um, and I love this about the Bible. God, God could have given us the nuts and bolts of salvation in an academic textbook or an essay. But he has given it to us in stories. I mean, we've thought about it already a bit this morning. Linda's introduced it for us. You know, stories like this epic in Esther to help us understand the, the depth and the color and the texture of the great story of salvation. And actually, one of my real hopes for you all for this weekend as you go away from here is that I hope that this encourages you to read your Bible more. The Bible's not boring. Um, sink into it, swim around in it, spend time in it, go deep into it. There are wonderful things to discover in this greatest of stories. Anyway, after all the drama, we finally land in chapters 9 and 10. And as we hear it read, and Tia's going to read um, it for us in a moment, after all the action of last night, we may be tempted to think, as we get to the end of Esther, that the drama kind of fizzles out a bit here. But it is no less precious, and we're going to see this morning the wonderful resolution to this story, and in particular how God's people rejoice and they remember. Okay, so we're going to start in, chapters in chapter 9, and just in verse 1 through 4. Thanks, dear. On the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities, in all the provinces of King Xerxes, to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them, because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. Okay, just note that um, phrase in verse 1, the tables were turned. If you've got a pen and you have a paper Bible and you don't mind writing in your Bible, 
maybe underline that or put a ring around it or at the top of the <coughs> section um, at the start of Esther, you might write, the tables were turned. Because in many ways, that will be a great title for this weekend. The tables were turned. This is the great reversal that we thought about last night. It's the big theme of the book, that the tables get turned because we've seen it all along, right? Esther goes from trafficked orphan and now she is powerful queen, tables turned. Mordecai goes from dead man walking to exalted ruler, tables turned. Haman goes from exalted to executed, tables turned. The Jews go from dominated to defending, tables turned. And in fact, everyone, verse 2, is now afraid of the Jews. Can you see that end of verse 2? No one could stand against them. The people were afraid of them. And more than that, verse 3, all the nobles and the elite are now helping the Jews because they're all terrified of Mordecai. And verse 4, Mordecai's reputation just spreads. He's becoming more and more powerful. As you read through the book, there's just tables turning everywhere. Um, particularly as you get to the end of the book here. Until finally, after nine months of waiting, the day comes for the king's double edict to, to come into force. And so just look at verse 5 through 19 as we hear it read. Thanks, dear. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hate them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, they also killed Barshadatta, Dalphon, Asfata, Boratha, Adalia, Aridatha, Barmashta, Arisai, Aridai, and Vezatha, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamedatta, the enemy of the Jews, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to, to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's 10 sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day in the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The kings in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then in the 15th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observe the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of feasting and joy a day for giving presents to each other. Okay. At this point, the great reversal is complete. The Jews are safe, and the enemies are defeated. <coughs> Excuse me. And I guess part of us wants to cheer, um, but maybe it's a bit muted, because if we're honest, it all seems a bit brutal. Uh, and so we've just got to deal with a couple of questions that we might have here as we read this, because... Things come up, right, as we read this. It doesn't perhaps sit comfortably. So let's just deal with a couple of questions that we may have. First up, let's, let's deal with this head on. There's a whole lot of killing here, right? Um, I mean, verse 5 is maybe a bit much. 
the Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. And we might read that and think, gosh, I'm not sure I can kind of reconcile that. That feels um, strong. But remember, there, there are a lot of people armed to the teeth who have been determined under Haman's influence to wipe out the Jews. And they've had nine months to change their minds. They knew what was coming, these guys in opposition to the Jews, and yet they set out to get the Jews anyway. And if they live, then the Jews die. The only way the Jews can live is if their enemies die. Including Haman's sons, verse 7. Ten guys with unpronounceable names, although Tyr smashed it. Um, and here at this point, in verse 7 through 10 particularly, the reader breathes a sigh of relief. right? Because the Agag line that we saw yesterday is finally destroyed. Remember what we've seen with um, Mordecai versus Haman, that rivalry stretching back to King Saul and King Agag, that's... Um, that Saul had failed to deal with, well, finally at this point, end of verse 10, is put to rest. And everybody knows about it. Because verse 14, <coughs> Haman's ten sons are impaled on posts around the citadel, much like their dad. Now the world can see that everything's turned upside down. That God's people are on the winning side. That God's enemies are defeated. Okay. So maybe we can just about get on board with the Jews defending themselves for that day. But then why, you might be asking, you might have picked up on this in verse 13, why does Esther ask for another day of defense in Susa? Can you see that in verse 13? She says, if it pleases the king, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also. And that maybe sounds a bit troubling. I mean, you read it and think, well, surely you don't need another day of authorized defense. Okay, because the initial decree was only for one day of attack. So why is... Esther asking for this. Has she gone kind of power crazy? Is there this bloodlust that's come over her? Is there this darker side of Esther's character that we are kind of being exposed to? Or, or is it, in fact, an entirely reasonable request? Maybe there's civil unrest in Susa. Maybe God's people are still under threat there, whereas in the surrounding provinces, it's all right. It's another example, verse 13, just of the author being, being quiet. Um, remember, this has happened a few times in Esther. Yes, we've gone through it. These morally questionable decisions that are being made and the author not really commenting on it. And it's the same thing here. It's not resolved. We're left to reflect on why Esther might have asked for this extra day and called, as ever, as we are being called to do countless times throughout this book, to trust in God's providence. Next question. Why do we keep getting told that they laid no hands on the plunder? Did you see that? Verse 10. They did not lay their hands on the plunder. Verse 15, they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Verse 16, they did not lay their hands on the plunder. When we see that kind of repetition, that needs to be making us think what's going on here. Really important detail, this isn't imperialism. Right? The Jews are just defending themselves. This isn't a land grab. Um, this wasn't an opportunity for the Jews to go looting and to accumulate personal gain. It's not about accumulating stuff. It's about the deliverance and the protection of God's people. And just think how tempting it must have been, right, to use this as a day, an opportunity to get rich quick off the back of all the fighting. But no, three times we were reminded the Jews laid no hands on the plunder. They just did the job of defending themselves, preserving their people, God's people, from the attack of the enemy. Final question from this section, because the section ends with a whole load of feasting and joy. Did you see that? just keeps being repeated in verse 17. They made it a day of feasting and joy. Verse 18, they made it a day of feasting and joy. Verse 19, it's a day of joy and 
feasting, the day after all the killing, we just keep being reminded of this. And you might ask, why on earth would you feast according to crushing one's enemies? Why would you feast and joy and party like there's no tomorrow when there's been so much bloodshed? That might be a question we have with our kind of Western sensibilities, but arguably that's the way people who haven't been oppressed think. Um, it's a bit like this. If and when Russia get booted out of Ukraine, which we pray might happen soon, what do you think the vibe is going to be like in those towns and cities? I mean, Ukraine is going to be partying, isn't it? They will be dancing in the streets of Kiev when the enemy is destroyed. Because for those under oppression, when freedom comes, there is feasting and there is joy. And so for all that this chapter might offend our kind of Western sensitivities, the narrator clearly intends us to see this is good news. We're meant to be cheering along with God's people because the people under the sentence of death have been rescued. God's enemies are defeated, and so God's people party like never seen. Now, just remember then how far we've come in this book. Just so important that we grab this and take this with us. It looked totally hopeless for God's people only a few chapters ago. But now we've got laughter and joy and feasting and celebrating. God's people are saved and they rightly rejoice. And we get to the end of Esther 9 and we see that in a world where God is ruling providentially over all things, as he is, it is not the proud and the cruel and the vindictive and the wicked who are going to have the last laugh. But it is God and his people. So just pause and imagine how good it felt for the Jews on the day after the fighting. The day when they could rest and think, we're safe. Just imagine the smile on their faces when they woke up, knowing that the decree was over. That they were protected. That God's man Mordecai was ruling, that Queen Esther was on the throne. Just imagine the peace that would have flooded their hearts as they met with friends and family. That sweet relief that they were free. The food that was prepared, the drinks that were enjoyed, the laughter, the tears, the happiness. How much more should that be our experience as followers of Jesus? Because remember, Esther shadows the greater reversal, and as Christians, we've got even greater reasons to rejoice. Esther is not a call to physical arms for Christians, right? It's not a call for us to go out and fight in a physical battle against flesh and blood. No, this story directs our hearts, as we thought last night, to the battle that Jesus won for us at the cross and the final victory that he will one day have over Satan, which means, and just rest in this again this morning, that if you come to Christ for forgiveness, then you are safe. The decree of death that once hung over you is gone. Christ has paid for it. You are protected by him for eternity. God's son, the risen King Jesus, is on the throne and no one can ever depose him. And you can now know a peace that passes all understanding. 
as you meet with one another this morning, the person you're sitting next to now, if they're trusting in Jesus, then they are a sister or a brother who has been freed. And so here's the rubber, and maybe particularly for those living in London, this is more important to remember than anything. Being a Christian, it's not a bolt-on to an otherwise busy life. It's everything. Because if what we thought about last night is true, if we really have been brought from death to life, if we really have been brought from mourning to gladness, from darkness to light, from slavery to freedom, by way of the table-turning cross of Christ, then that should fill us with joy in every facet of our lives. And yet maybe you're sat there and thinking, Tom, I just don't feel very joyful. It's the start of January. It's cold and wet. I don't have much money. Future prospects seem bleak. Let me encourage you, if that's you, just gently to raise your gaze. Because this is a joy that we know in part now and that we are going to know fully in the age to come. Because as you read Esther 9, you can't help but look ahead to the end of days when all sin and sorrow is going to be done away with and when we will be celebrating with our heavenly king for all eternity in perfect peace. So let me just read out some verses from Revelation 19. Okay, um, These will be familiar to you. <coughs> Revelation 19, as we look ahead to that day, John writes this, After this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. And then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like peals of loud thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. You see, for the Christian, we have a seat reserved for us at the wedding supper of the Lamb where we are going to feast and we are going to rejoice and we are going to be glad for all eternity, praising God for the defeat of the enemy and the salvation of his people. And that day is coming. And so every joy that you know now as you consider your salvation is just a tiny fraction of the joy that is coming your way. And if you're sat there now and thinking, I don't feel much joy, then hold on, because it's coming. Because of the great reversal, God's people rejoice now, and we will be rejoicing and feasting for all eternity. But it's easy to forget, isn't it? It's easy to forget, and maybe we're... You know, we're inclined to think we're going to go away from here and get back on with our busy lives. And it's easy for these things to slip once again into the background of our minds. Maybe when we first became a Christian, we were so full of the joy of the Lord. Um, I'm sure you know people who've become Christians recently, maybe, um, perhaps even in, in recent weeks. And their joy, if you've ever met a new Christian, their joy is so infectious. They just want to go and tell everybody. 
They can't stop smiling. It's wonderful spending time with a new believer. Um, but if we're honest, we know that can cool off, right? Because the distractions of this life and the fight against sin and the sufferings that we endure and all these other things can mute our joy. And so we need to remember. We need regular reminders of what God has done for us and what we have to look forward to. And it was exactly the same for the Jews in Esther's day. And so as a result, a new um, feast day was initiated. So let's just turn to our final reading. Um, and here we're going to pick it up at verse 20 in chapter 9 all the way through to the end. Thanks. Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes near and far to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast the pur, that is the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head, and that he and his son should be impaled on poles. Therefore, these days were called Purim, from the word Pur, because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them. The Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, and in every province, and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of Xerxes' kingdom, words of goodwill and assurance, to establish these days of Purim at their de designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores, and all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are they not written in the books of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews, because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. Okay, um, so this great celebration for the Jews at their deliverance, it's not just left as a one-off party and then forgotten about. This becomes, in the life of um, the Jewish people, an annual celebration of giving presents, of giving gifts to the poor, of sharing food, so that, did you pick up in verse 28, so that the memory of these days shouldn't die out among their descendants. The purpose is that they wouldn't forget all that had happened. This is a chance, this festival, to remember 
to rejoice. And look at verse 26. Can you see the feast day is called Purim? Um, now, why is it called Purim? It tells us, if you remember the lots that Haman cast yesterday to decide the date that the Jews were going to be wiped out, the poor, it's a deliberate play on that. It's a reminder as they celebrate this Purim festival, they're thinking, poor, oh yeah, dice, oh yeah, Haman rolled the dice to try and destroy us. A reminder to God's people that their destiny was not going to be decided by the throw of the dice before these false gods, but rather by the Lord, the one who determined the roll of the dice in the first place and who alone determines the destiny of his people according to his covenant promises. Just constant reminders in the history of the Jewish people. And the Jews take it on themselves, verse 27, to add Purim to the Jewish calendar as a regular reminder. And just stay in verse 27 because it's not an exclusive club that outsiders can't join. Um, I love this throwaway line. Can you see it there? The Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year. Um, the doors just left open for other people to identify with the covenant people of God, to come and join the celebration, to follow the rescuing God. And today, Purim still happens, usually around the beginning of March um, in the Jewish calendar. It is, by all accounts, the most festive and joyful of Jewish celebrations, remembering that God delivered his people according to the promise. Jews on that, on that day send gifts of food to friends, to loved ones. The book of Esther is read in the synagogue out loud in its entirety. Um, flags are waved whenever Esther's name is recited. Everyone boos when the word Haman comes up. Um, people eat these things called hamantashen, which are these little triangular cookies named after Haman, apparently. Um, the Talmud actually prescribes drinking and celebrating on Purim until no one can tell the difference between Mordecai be blessed and Haman be cursed. I'll let you read between the lines. It's basically a big knees up. And this right here is the purpose of the book on one level. The author is telling the Jews, the first readers of Esther, this is why we celebrate Purim. Don't forget it. Remember, this is your story of God's providence in bringing about a great reversal for your salvation. And so we maybe get to the end and we're thinking, well, why aren't we celebrating Purim today? Sounds like a lot of fun. Why are we not eating triangle cookies and given presents to each other at the start of March. You know, we're grafted into the people of God, right? Through faith in Christ, we thought about that. This story is our story, but yes, it's only a shadow, though, of the greater story. The story doesn't finish here. This is the trailer to the main event because Jesus has come and brought about that greater reversal. He has also inaugurated a better remembrance feast. And so we come now at the very end of our time in Esther over this weekend to the Lord's Supper. Because here at the table is the regular reminder that we need of the great reversal that Jesus has won for us. Now, there's not a direct link between Purim and the Lord's Supper in a way that there is a more obvious link between Passover and the Lord's Supper in the Bible. But the, sh the shadow is still there. The shadow is still there. And so as we share the Lord's Supper together as God's people, this is our opportunity to remember the reversal. And we know that that's an important thing to do because... As we read these words now from 1 Corinthians, words that we often read when we share the Lord's Supper with each other, I would imagine, just listen to these words that Paul writes and pick up on the remember references from Jesus. Okay, verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so in a moment, as we eat and drink... We look back and we remember the great reversal at the cross where Jesus was lifted up on that pole in our place. We look up and we remember that Jesus, our great champion, is enthroned in heaven as the risen and exalted king. Our great, kind, compassionate king, as we thought about yesterday morning. And we look forward because this mini-feast It's just a reminder of the final feast. It's a glimpse into the coming day when we are going to gather together as God's people and we're going to feast for all eternity with joy and with celebration as we thought about a moment ago. That's why this meal that we're about to share is so important. It's why it's so important that we share it regularly together. Somebody helpfully writes this, that the table is not merely an invitation to a history lesson. It is a sign that God keeps his promises. This isn't just formulaic. This is a mini-feast. This is our Purim. And as we eat and drink now, we remember the great reversal and we anticipate the party to come. And so all that to say, and perhaps as the band comes up, we're going to share the Lord's Supper together now as a way of concluding our time in Esther. Remembering that in Christ, our sorrow has been turned to joy, our mourning has been turned to celebration and awaiting the feast to come. And here's an idea. Why don't we try this? As you eat the bread, and as you drink the wine, why not turn to the person next to you as you return to your seats in a bit, and say something to your brother and sister like, he died for you. Or, he's coming back. Or, he's going to take you home. Remind them as you pass it to them of the great reversal that we've considered, of the reasons that each of us have to rejoice. We're going to sing. And then we're going to turn to the Lord's table.